here's my framing. Although we can and should go anywhere we want with this conversation. Now, wonderful. You and I know each other a little. We've been in some shared discussion spaces. We've got some shared friends and some similar ideas. The spaces we haunt are largely oriented around uh, super comprehensive interdisciplinary philosophies and their relationship to embodied developmental practice and the potential for a multidimensional civilization upgrade. Beautiful. <laughs> I didn't know I was in that space, but I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> hey, hey, I found my home. <laughs> the, the basic level, the zero level of all that is people seeing, valuing, and playing with ideas of that kind. Completely. Second level is something like generating coherence and convergence around the unfolding edge of complementary variants of this sort of shared general set of dynamic insights and ethical orientations. Excellent. I do a lot of that. I'm possibly in the top 1% now in terms of how many and how diverse the people from this metaverse are that I've spoken and worked with. And all those conversations are valuable, but some of them feel different, feel better, feel deeper. Now, possibly that's just temperament and it's about who we individually get along with, but it might also indicate a next step one degree more in terms of whatever this unfolding web of generative relationships is. Totally. So I thought you and I could discuss and practice the interpersonal psychotechnology of going a level deeper in terms of being in sync, whatever that means. Love it. What do you think? Yeah. Where no, would you I'm... go from there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm resonant at my gut level in relationship to the context you just spilled out for me. So all of a sudden I'm jamming and jiving. <laughs> All right. I feel a, a subtle buzzy tingling in the center of my chest, and I appear to be in pretty good spirits. <laughs> the damn best spirits I've heard. <laughs> a lot of different ways to think about it. You know, I, I think about a, a friend of mine I had at the end of high school and in university, and we would go on these hikes. And we were at the time really obsessed by what we call it information theory. Just if you treated absolutely everything as information, then what right. kind of map of the world could you have? Sure. And we would hike up this hill and down. It took a few hours. Mm -hmm. And usually there was a point on that hike where we sort of switched positions. Hmm. Where we, we sort of each realized we were now arguing the other person's position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That whatever we'd been doing in this conversation and probably the physicality was a big factor as well. Right. Right. It always felt like we passed through each other and we're yeah. now two nodes of the same conversation talking to itself. Right. That, that kind of stuff fascinates me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because basically then the nodes are able to take perspectival shifting, right? You have schema, you have all this consideration, and then you swap. I think our conversation was, or at least for my end, was prompted when I said, hey, John and I are syncing up. Is that, was that part of the least... Uh, and, and certainly that sinking is part of my own experience in the last uh, year. And then exactly the resonant frequencies of a couple of people in the space have aligned in, well, sort of a musicality that is emerging. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, John's concepts of, you know, orchestration and musical resonance in terms of dialogue, I think are really apt or at least really evocative. Yes. Uh, you know, I have a certain feeling with John. Obviously, Bruce and I get along in a special way. Uh, we talked to Alexander Bard from Sweden yesterday. And afterwards, we both thought, oh, this is something a little more than just a high level conversation went on here. There's a feeling emerging. 
Absolutely. So I, I got hooked. Bard was my actually hook into this space, believe it or not. So I got, yeah, no, I got hooked into Bard. Some guy referred me to him in, two, in my sabbatical of fall of 2000, who had come on to my theory of knowledge listserv, uh, had bridged me over to Bard and really sort of I landed on his intellectual deep web space. And I was like, who the hell is this crazy son of a bitch? <laughs> He's a, you know, he's way out there, but I then read his, his uh, you know, Cynthiaism and digital libido, and then was a, have been a active participant on his list and been in several podcasts with him and find him to be, you know, uh, enormously fascinating at multiple levels. This is the point of the conversation where, and this is maybe characteristic of me generally, it's going well. So then I start to get anxious. <laughs> <laughs> Is it going to keep going well? <laughs> right. Is the next shot get missed? We dink it off the board. Maybe we've already peaked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. Turn it off. This is one of those quick podcasts. <laughs> There's a, I mean, as I'm sure you know, one of the major theories about development has to do with a sort of uh, progressive reflection. Right, this Robert Keegan idea that the subject of one level becomes the object of the subject of the next level. Absolutely. So there's this natural tendency to think that maybe we can make a little progress in terms of deepening synchronization simply by making that the object of the discourse. Right. Now, it might also be a dangerous temptation that leads us away from the actual mechanisms mm-hmm. because humans are, you know, predisposed to reify things and think that they've done something right. really good by accomplishing that. But maybe right. it's also how it works. I don't know. I think if we can cycle an I, me relationship up and stay grounded at the same time, we may stay in resonant frequency along those lines. I know. I think one of the other elements that stands out for me is how many different parts of a person get brought into the discussion. Mm. Like we t- we've touched on emotion. I, I brought a little bit of biography in. We're going to mm-hmm. touch on what's going on somatically, things like that, you know, common reference points. Um, so I think that there's a natural, I mean, we're looking at models and we're looking at communities in which people are very concerned to bring a whole bunch of types of perspectives and mm-hmm. dimensions of human experience together in a coherent way. Right. Now, to some degree, I think that happens naturally in conversation, but they, those pieces have to be brought in. Totally. There's a lot of discussions where you, you just the front talks and those elements are left out and they would naturally start to synchronize if they were added into the Right. Discourse. No. When one of my gross as a, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. I used to be way heady uh, in my original, you know, that's where a lot of my talent lies and then broaden it into the affect and then broaden it into the body and then broaden it into the whole context and being able to uh, jam between different modes and seeing their interrelation, um, you know, is part of my own development. And I look for other folks that can, who have obviously trailed that mountain in various ways and then can dance across lots of different modes and tunes. How, um, what do you think the status of like the, the energy metaphor is for all of that? Because one of those things is like when you bring in visceral elements of like body sensing and emotion and things, it's very natural to reach for energy metaphors. Now energy is a real thing. It's Mm -hmm. so it's a really useful metaphor for describing objective reality but it seems like it's almost a, an inherent part of how people coordinate. Totally. If they're, if, they're running th- if they're running through the lens of that metaphor, they, it allows them to figure out how to synchronize a little better. 
Well, you mentioned information earlier that you were obsessed with this. So in my sort of ontology, the two most base and then generalizable concepts are energy and information. Okay. So like the, and, and I flip back and forth between those um, and seeing their relation. And sometimes I want to be scientifically precise, especially because of new age energy and woo, you know, is a dangerous concept. But at the same time, I want to think very, I want us to shift from, to use a Wilbur frame of a materialistic flatland to a dynamic energy information ecology. You know, that's that's the proper frame, in my estimation, of what a scientific ontology would say. And it's just so much more conducive um, to our subjective and intersubjective lives. So I love the energy metaphor, recognizing and indeed look to actually pull it into not metaphor. I mean, you know, we're doing work energy right here, you know, uh, and uh, and I love this. I had a moment, as I think, you know, we talked about it a while ago in September where I fused wisdom and energy together in a particular kind of way um, that was going into the body. I mean, I was definitely uh, I was tracking that. So I, I really think that we should um, attend to the energy concept in a really sort of promiscuous way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. And it, it, it can be used by people in a way that is so broad that it has no special meaning at all. Uh, but when you want to make sure that um, personal and interpersonal experience is kept in the conversation, then it's hard to do that without relating the mm, I don't know, introspective, proprioceptive experience of something's flowing into me, something's totally. flowing out of me. And it's a really, uh, you touched on this, it's a really flexible concept, even though it gave us that revolution from thinking in terms of material blocks to dynamic processes was a huge leap forward in the fidelity of our mapping of the universe. Yep. But I don't think people appreciate how, how weird a move that was, uh, you know, like to work out the idea of the conservation of energy. It, it obsesses me like mm. to go, hey, look, there was 10 units in my leg. <laughs> and then they went into the soccer ball. So it was moving and it stopped moving. So I guess they leaked out into the ground. And as long as that we still, we count as, as 10 and we keep that number consistent. We have this enormous new tool for mapping the world. That's really weird. It's really abstract. And to think that the, the fundamental thing about the material world is this incredible abstraction uh, is profound and amazing, but it also suggests that you might be able to do a similar mapping if you could get something like quantitative consistency in any area then you're on the verge of applying a, an energy model that is as legit as the one we apply to material objects lost you there for a sec but yes yeah, so last i heard was quantitative objects uh and i got a little bit of note here my internet's a bit unstable but let's see if we can sync up our our energy information line <laughs> here and keep it rolling uh but yes you talked about uh, i've been obsessed for the concept of energy at the physical work level, its connection to entropy, the conservation law, how it represents sort of math, our mathematical, there, there's an angle on it that's really, it's a mathematical utility that allows to create equivalencies. And then there are these really deep questions about what is this energy thing ontologically? Like, what the hell is it? I like my shorthand, and, I'll, and this is a shorthand, and there's a lot of deep questions, is that it's the ultimate substance common denominator. I like to think about the uh, universe as beginning as a pure energy singularity, okay? And then finding res that means that the concept connects us uh, across the resonant levels, 
You know, I'm big on the stratification in nature and then finding the appropriate um, resonant frequencies from particles to atoms, you know, a whole on kind of way. Um, and, and that the concept affords it, it's mystical. It bumps up against new age, but you can hold it, I think in a really, really coherent way. And I think it releases us into, like I was saying, a much more yeah, dynamic and fluid way of thinking about our lives. Um, at one point I wrote, you know, people said, oh, I'm just a bunch of chemicals. Okay. Like I've had people say that in this materialistic flatland. I was like, Hey, go with it. You're just a bunch of energy. <laughs> yeah, it feels different, right? <laughs> it's got a very different feel. So uh, yeah, I think we, uh, from a scientific ontology, I think we can pull that concept in we have to be careful some, but it's really a beautiful humanistic concept, I believe. There's a, I don't know how familiar you are with Wilhelm Reich. Uh, you know, he's some, uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the guys who succeeded Freud and tried to critique sure. something to that tradition and then went mm-hmm. on into a nature sort of, of character, politics. armor and defense. and Yeah. So interesting guy because he did really pioneering work in a number of different fields. Yep. Right. Um, may or may not have <laughs> gone off the deep end toward the end. We're not sure. But I th- one of the interesting things he said was, if you can't feel stimulation flows in your body, then you're not going to add them into your map of the cosmos. Mm. There's an element of livingness and an, mm-hmm. also an element of energetics that's going to be really hard for people to map if they're physicality isn't healthy if they're too locked down and they themselves internally feel like uh, you know an armored solid object totally are they going to validate the idea that energy flows are structuring the world i i I totally believe that uh and so from my psychological angle one of the things i look at is the ways in which people are tangled up inside okay and then i think about that in terms of a vertical stack uh, the vertical stack from a psychological perspective, the base, I talk about the base of sentience. All right. And actually John Verveke and I synced up on this in terms of, okay, so from my subjective perspective, the most base thing that I have is essentially a pleasure, pain, active, um, passive approach oriented frame that connects me to my body. Okay. And then that, so then I, when I'm doing my alignment, I'm like, all right, what's my body energy, positive, negative, active, passive arrangement, you know? Uh, And then I jump up into my heart, which is sort of my primate perspectival and feelings, my more, you know, complicated networks of perceptions, motivations, and drives. I see that then in my relational field, then I narrate that. And then I think about my identity and worldview, and then ultimately my transcendent alignment. So what that does is then it's sort of like, okay, I want to create a field of orienting my body to my heart, to my mind, to my spirit across vertical and then horizontal connection. And I think that, you know, the concept of energy around those stacking is probably the best basic concept to think about the coherent integrative alignment, especially energy information together, you know, and then are you able to do that? And, uh, you know, it's super hard, but also key. And those that are, you know, and if we can get more and more people able to do that across many, many levels, I mean, that's what this is all about in many ways. Uh, two questions came up for me listening to that. And one is sort of um, necessary process of untangling at each level in the stack. Mm-hmm. Does that look like? Because it's like a different discipline to do each of those untangles. Yep. Uh, 
which is very much aligned with your work. Uh, then, uh, so I don't know if that's really a question. It's just an interesting area to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is about the transcendental alignment part and to what degree you think that's an independent part and to what degree you think it's a, um, a result of the harmonization of the physicality, emotionality, and intellectuality. I think that, well, I'll take both of those parts uh, because actually they're really related for me and they, they, they're really at the center of my energy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so one of them is that there is a way to stack, naturalistically stack nature stratification in a relatively clear, coherent, naturalist way, way better than we're doing. Okay. And the problem of psychology basically is, let's put it this way. So physics did a pretty good job, subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, and then scale. Okay. Then we got a matter, then you got physical material sciences doing their thing. Then you get evolution, genetics, and cell theory stacking on top of that. So then inside of my parts, I got genes, cells, and cells into organ systems. Okay. That's basically what STEM teaches us, and we have access to that through a modernist empirical natural science view. But then coherence goes to shit when we go from the nervous system into mind or psychology or consciousness. Then our language system breaks down because we don't have a coherent map then of that stacking. Okay. And that's what my whole frame of reference is in relationship to what the Unified theory does to try to solve the problem of psychology inside a naturalistic worldview so that it aligns the stacking with a lot more clarity between our everyday lives and the metaphysics, like to use Zach Stein, the metaphysics of love and care and meaning. (laughs) I mean, it lines fine. You know, the other system basically cuts the legs out from that shit. This is like, no, that's part of the energy information pattern of the universe from a scientific perspective. That's my passion on that side of the equation. Well, then we get into the whole bridge from science to spirituality, okay? My old atheistic stance, my, you know, which it was ground into a Dawkins grow up sort of ways. Oh, that's obviously just a projection, right? <laughs> okay. My more advanced stance is like, fuck, I'm going to be agnostic about the ultimate ratio of reality, who anyone that's not, I'm sort of suspicious of, all right? <laughs> so I'm going to start there from a position of wisdom and humility and be like, hey, you know? And then there are a couple of things that have aligned in my life, you know, that of synchronicity and even empirical synchronicity. If we get into like the singularity for me, that's actually an empirical spiritual concept that I, you know, give to. So essentially where I am is it's clear to me that the liminal space of the ultimate concern is crucial to our human nature. Okay. So, so at the project, I, 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 to come off Alexander Bard, I believe in sin. I'm a synthesis now, okay, in the sense that I believe in the concept of God at the very least. You know? um, and this is Aristotle's ultimate, you know, eudaimonic endpoint or Paul Tillich's ultimate concern. I mean, this is how we're built and to be vertically oriented to that. And then there, uh, my naturalism says, okay, I can get the table of clarity here and then see where the edge of metaphysical clarity drifts off. I can feel the spiritual pull and then I'll just let my intuition manage that. And, and logic can be like, well, whatever, we'll see what happens. <laughs> does, that, does, that, does that make sense in relation? Yeah, yeah that's great. I was thinking of, uh, you know, 
Ken Wilbur, but not only Ken Wilbur, tries to make these distinctions in a holarchy and a normal hierarchy. And mm -hmm. often people understand what he's saying as if it was a normal hierarchy where you got these levels and these ones are better. But yep. his, I think his, his intelligent point there is that it counts as a next level when it includes the previous level. So it's not A and then B, it's A and then A and B and then totally. B and C. And yep. so that each one of the higher, legitimately higher, deeper things is legitimately higher and deeper because it enfolds the previous ones. And if it's just an alternative to them, then it's not actually that layer. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about uh, sort of multiple functions, multiple lines of intelligence in us and how those can be harmonized and physical, emotional, and mental intelligence are the traditional simple to grasp three yep. basic easy ones. And they, a lot of spiritual and religious practices actually involve without saying so the harmonization of those subjective functions totally and that very often produces some sort of generalized feeling that we might call beingness mm -hmm. and a sense of a too muchness that doesn't mm -hmm. fit into any of the pieces mm -hmm. that too muchness i imagine it kind of uh reaching an architectural point at the top and folding back on you know like when you see the uh the face at the center of the aztec calendar ah i always imagine i'm under a dome and i'm looking up and there's this face peering down from the next i level. love that i imagine that the pieces of this level went up to that dome and turned into that face and are now looking down at me that's unbelievable so that's generative yep. it doesn't require that entity to have pre-existed however it probably does require something in the syntax of the ontological structure of reality that creates that point so that this process can occur. Like the, the exactly. architecture of the process has to predate me. And so I could say, yeah, God existed before, but in the most minimal possible sense. <laughs> I love it. That's a I love so much of that because it's, it's the jet first. I, I got super psyched about your and Bruce and, and the generative enclosure thing. You guys, you know, that was a beautiful uh, production, at least for me, you know, and it was high level. So you're not getting a huge number of hits, but those of us that dance in this space were like, damn, I love that. And of course, generative enclosure. Okay. And I, I produced the whole uh, natural logarithmic spiral. Right. And the idea that there is, and this is the spiritual calling, the idea that there is this move toward and you are seeing and somehow it's reflecting and then it collapses. And the beauty of that imagery for me also is this of as below above. Right. Yeah. And when I freaked out about wisdom energy, it's because it caught for me both the above below generative enclosure and got the non-dual oneness through and through. Uh, so I love that imagery. I think that imagery is is beautiful and deeply resonant with the um, where I'm positioning myself in relationship to the minimalist concept of God that I can get aligned with. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I made two observations in terms of the sinking thing, mm -hmm. in terms of my own sense of engagement in the discourse. Mm -hmm. One is when I thought of questions to ask that I'm genuinely curious about because they, you know, I usually present it as, is it this or this? And what I mean is that's as far as my thinking goes, it goes to a spot where these two are both involved somehow. And I don't quite have the closure to integrate those two. So my genuine curiosity feeding into the discourse, I think is a factor, but yes. also we both just did. And what John Verveke does a lot, you start to uh, illustrate the structures of dynamic architecture with your body. <laughs> totally. And then I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a level deeper in the, in the dialogue. 
<laughs> I, I, absolutely. I mean, you know my shit. It's like I have all these damn pictures. That's part of the issue, too, is this, this geometric picture of reality representation, this propositional. And then I want to talk with my hands and I want to get into a participatory groove in relationship to that. All of those so sense modalities. And this is to me, you know, getting in sync and coherent integration across all of these different elements. It's like there's all the static and we can pull noise out of it. And then when that resonant harmony happens, it, it, just the understanding across multiple levels. If you go to like Ian McGilchrist's whole point, is like, oh my God, we grossly, another error of modernity, we grossly did propositional knowledge. Look at my left hemisphere, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> like write it out and analytically. I mean, all I've been reading up a lot of an analytical philosophy lately, just because I'm trying to make a point. And half the time I'm like, God, we're just way off key on this stuff. <laughs> You know, it's like, we're, you know, there's a lot, we got to sing a lot more tunes and find the resonant frequency across those modalities and across each other. That's syncing up this for me. Yeah. The, uh, the musicality lens, it seems so important, both in terms of understanding a world that is energetic because resonances and oscillations and all that architecture, which I don't know nearly enough about music and I don't know nearly enough about practical electronics to, you know, I, I just keep looking at those areas going, wow, I, if I knew more about those, my philosophical mapping could be so much richer. Right. And I see, you know, oh, I was, I was writing a thing this morning about Nietzsche and the mm. birth of tragedy from the spirit of music. And people often okay. leave out the, the rest of the title. Mm. The birth of tragedy from the spirit of music. Oh, fascinating. There's that yeah. volume that what we need is a musical Socrates. Ah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, I've been, I, yeah, to me, I also, I, you know, I was a, um, of, of the distribution of talent, I did not get high end on the music level, you know, and I have hung out with all musical friends in high school. In fact, I just had a meeting with them. We, every other uh, Thursday, we hang together at night and uh, we were just joking about, you know, I was basically incompetent around music. So I was always, that was my LD area, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm glad we're not going there, but I've hooked up with Greg Thomas, who, who's the opposite. He's, yeah. he's got musical, you know, uh, and in particular then jazz and blues and his, and so I'm now riffing and, and, and doing, I'm actually pulling through him and, th and studying some issues of sort of the philosophy of jazz. I'm, I'm definitely seeing, and I have made a lot of those metaphors. It's just that I, you know, I'm working through my own neuroticism in relationship to my limitations on it, but there it is, you know? So, but yes, I completely agree um, that the, that um, the philosophical transition, especially if it's going to be the size that I believe we need it to be, it's going to speak to people not through propositional language, it's going to speak to people through participatory modes and obviously music. And I think in terms of the history of our species, music almost certainly played a huge role in getting us intersubjectively in sync that laid a landscape for propositional language to take off. So, yep, uh, that's uh, musical Socrates. What a beautiful concept. I haven't heard of that. Uh, I'm trying to pull in like <laughs> three or four things went in three or four directions connected to the same thing. Uh, Greg Thomas and I had a great discussion maybe a year ago on the parallels between improvisation in music and improvisation in shamanic ritual. I think I heard that conversation. Yes. And, uh, mm -hmm. I think that the, the notion of rhythmic improvisation is really important, even though a lot of people think of it in terms of theater and comedy. Now that's yeah. a really good thing. That's a really new phenomenon with, allows people to bring forth and understand a lot more of the authenticity of the human condition. Totally. I'm really impressed by 
performers who have a background in improv and I can do it in some areas, but musically like you, I've never been that oriented to music somehow, even though it was in my family, my dad played like 10 instruments, rebuilt (laughs) some of them himself. And I went to piano lessons and hated it and just had to memorize the movements. It was so unpleasant that I made a scene at a piano recital when I was a kid, but though it was funny, I, I got up and I was supposed to play this long piece. And instead I said, I was going to play a short excerpt from Beethoven and I played one note and then I walked off stage because I was just so unhappy with my piano teacher. It's <laughs> too funny. Well, there was one kid in the fifth grade that didn't make chorus tryouts and you're looking at him. <laughs> So yeah, there we go. We can share. We can resonate across that domain. <laughs> um, it's funny. We, uh, uh, some of this came off the Nietzsche thing about the musical Socrates. And one of the other, at the far end of Nietzsche's career, right before the end, he wrote this book called The Wagner Case. Mm. And The Wagner Case is, and you know, he's like, hey, this guy's a genius. And hey, this guy was a friend of mine. But his music is bad for people. And mm, I remember that. I'm going to yeah. compare that to Bizet, whose music I think shows the future. Mm. And these are the qualities I think healthy music of the future will have. And these mm. are the qualities that music, which we really appreciate, but isn't good for us, will have. Yeah. And it's a complex piece of writing. It's hard mm-hmm. to dig out what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. You know, mm. and uh, there's when I was a kid, just certain lines from Bizet. I think it was featured in an episode of The Prisoner, you know, that mm. British show. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's classic stuff, but the idea mm. that we could look into music for signs of health or pathology relative to culture is fascinating to me. Totally. And I don't think anybody's really followed that up, right? That could be a whole field of study. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's one of the things that's on, I told, uh, Greg Thomas about this also. I, I, there's a totally open domain. So I built the you know unified frame for psychology, and then this hey maybe we can get an enlightenment 2.0, and then this whole issue of aesthetics in general, uh, and and beauty and the philosophy of beauty of what it says about that, and then music in particular. And I as a clinician, I will tell you, you know, what's more, you know. Uh, immediately available for many people than sort of the music mood relation, right? I mean, that the, and, and what can draw people in. And when you see individuals get into a body groove, their entire frame on and context on what they're threatened about, on what they feel. Uh, this is why so much you know, mar- art and music therapy is basically about, okay, we're going to move from the bottom into a rhythm, into an expressive emotional category. And if we can think about that for an individual, well, then we would wonder about where we are and the archetypal zeitgeist kind of messages and then think about kind of what kind of music do we need for the chirotic moment that we're in. I think that's a beautiful, uh, I haven't thought too much about that, but that's a beautiful reflection. It'd be fascinating. Uh, I've always been slightly distanced from, but uh, jealous of people whose body intelligence allowed them to really easily get into rhythms. Right. And uh Okay, here's the thing from my past is that mm-hmm. periodically I would hear songs because I had very peculiar cultural tastes when I was younger. So when I got to be an adult, people were always puzzled by what I'd seen and what I hadn't seen. <laughs> okay. And I would say, oh, this music isn't that bad. And they'd be like, yeah, it's Led Zeppelin. We've told you this <laughs> 10 times already. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, I just had no category for that. Right. 
So I was like, okay, right now I'm going to take a month and I'm going to like get, I'm going to immerse myself completely in Led Zeppelin because everybody's telling me they're great. I know drummers and they're like, John Bonham is the greatest drummer. I'm like, okay, well, whose word am I going to take if not yours? All right. So then I tried to listen and learn mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult for me for the first mm. couple of weeks. Okay. And I remember I put on this one song and uh, I started to try to listen to the spaces between the notes. Mm. And that's when I felt like I fell into it. And all of a sudden the song was around oh. me. I'm like, oh, I get Led Zeppelin now. Oh, I, wow. I could move with yeah. it. And, and I think there's a similar thing in terms of interpersonal orchestration. Definitely. At least for me, if I, if I imagine that I'm seeing the, the, the empty spots between your moves, it's easier for me to start to synchronize with them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the, uh, the uh, Roy Bashkar really made this clear for me. I would have been sensing it, but the absence and then the nature of positive absence and the nature of void and therefore white space inside of lots of different things, the ways in which propositions take up space, the ways in which notes take up space, and then the space in between those notes all of that is about a gestalt. So that's super cool that you then sort of inverted it and then fell into the negative of the song. <laughs> that, that, that rocks. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll see. Maybe that's been my, maybe I'll use that. My whole musical genius will wake it up. But Layman, you know, maybe it's all in the negative. I've been looking on the wrong side of the space. <laughs> It's weird. I need all these little, uh, I need these prosthetic strategies to help me do things that I think other people have. Yeah, right. You're just gonna you're gonna unleash the whole musical potential. It's the spaces, you idiots. <laughs> Love it. I certainly never listened in that regard. <laughs> That's hysterical. That um uh, the in and out, the positive and the negative spaces is really interesting. And I imagine it like a dotted line, perforated boundary of some kind. Actually, hold on. I'm actually, I'm getting yeah. a nice image here. Okay. Go. So, all right. So we're going to try to create a resonant. I have often talked about sort of the top of the tree of knowledge is this transcendental beacon. Okay. And when I talk about syncing up, I say, okay, I'm going to send out a beacon and then see what frequencies come back. And if they start to align. And I've almost always thought about that in terms of the positive, the signal, the alignment, right. the resonant, right? But now, wait, okay, now if you think about it like, well, it's a spider web of resonance, well, then what are the spaces in between? And if we think about the collective intelligence of trying to get, how do we maximize the coherent integrative space in between so other people can fill that and then create fractal spaces also that other people can be brought in on? You know, it's actually so it's a jump into, hey, we when we think about the collective intelligence of the system, what's the space that's it's opened up in addition to what's the positive, you know, line of connection that's emerging? I think that's where, uh, again, where Wilbur's pretty good is in describing mm -hmm. these as openings of spaces. Yes. Um, God, I thought of a couple of things you said there. I'm not sure I have them anymore. <laughs> Well, this is the space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of them was the way conversational structures are open or not. I had a teacher in high school and easily my favorite teacher and partly because he was very masculine and very dismissive and very personal about everything. Mm. And he was really critical of girls who made statements and that went up at the end as if they were questions. Mm. Providing him answers, but really asking him permission for that to be the answer, and I was, you know, I was charmed by that insight at the time. But 
years later, I thought, well, it's not problematic to open communication at the end for an interaction with someone else. <laughs> That's a pretty valid approach. <laughs> right. We wouldn't want to ban that from communication, right? <laughs> uh, uh, so that was one. And the other one was the relationship between like a top down and a bottom up collective intelligence, mm. right? Where I think, you know, Bruce and I had a great conversation with the spiritual teacher, Andrew Cohen. Mm-hmm. And one of the, they work a lot on intersubjective spirituality. Okay. You're supposed to be in your authentic self. And we're all mm-hmm. supposed to align to a transcendental higher reference point of, you know, non-dual evolutionary leading right. edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's great. However, his community did sort of fall apart because mm. of a lack of, uh, embrace of the full context of human experience, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? There was a revolt of his students, and so uh-huh. now he's on the other side of that. Okay. The flip of all that is places where, like, consensus and everyone sharing and bringing up all the uh, fragmentary parts of their human experience is how we're trying to get some kind of group cohesion, uh-huh, but we uh-huh. never subordinate ourselves to a transcendental reference point. So it seems like you need both of those in order to set that container in play. Definitely. In fact, I would go here to, uh, you know, I'm in regular contact with Zach Stein and he, he's got a meta psychology, sort of a humanistic developmental meta psychology that says, listen, if we're going to be whole humans and have a sustainable way of being at the individual, small group, global level, there's really three core lines of human development that we can use as a it's a flexible and not absolute, but I think it's a useful, very useful taxonomy. One is sort of basically skill development. Okay. So this is like, how do you instrumentally be in the world and how do you get more and more efficiently competent in the world, which is what our capital labor system tries to engage in. You know, um, my daughter's actually on an interview right now to become a, get into a doctoral program in biomedical engineering. So I have to be, I can't be super loud going, oh, that's shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be able to try to not get excited, but but, you know, as I was telling her, the d- skills that she's trying to develop in that domain, great. Okay. But at the same time, the entire context is around skill development and competency in a particular potentially narrow skill control set. Right. Then the other issue is ensoulment. This is the, you know, what we do in psychotherapy is sort of what's the shadow? What's the depth worth? What's in the body? When have you been traumatized? How do you metabolize that? Who the hell are you at your core when you're not at work? You know, how do you relate to yourself and other people? So we have to hold that too, that ensoulment of, you know, basically your socio-emotional self and shadow and then transcendence. Then, you know, what is beyond the ego and what's ultimate good and how do we fundamentally get reset and coordinate around what we're trying to do collectively oriented toward good, true, beautiful, whatever. And I think that that categorization system, at least I find myself very often looking to say critiques or proposals and be like, well, are they getting, are we able to resonantly fulfill across those domains? And so I'm very thankful for Zach's kind of delineation, because that certainly feels aligned with me. And then, of course, it gets a lot of tripartites can get aligned in relationship to that because he's done a lot of good work on that. Um, Where do you see the relationship between, let's say, the conscious and the subconscious or McGillchrist's left and right in that process? Yeah. So um, I I think that Zach talks about it in terms of sort of language 
And I'd be sort of really, it's pragmatic language, left brain trying to then organize systematic control, okay? Left hemisphere kinds of stuff. And the development of that for like capital instrumental purposes, all right? Versus sort of an image into affect based, which is where your ensoulment would sort of go, okay? And I mean, if we go back to like, the terms consciousness is so unbelievably, you have to, you got to drop in and say, well, this is what I mean. But if we do Freud, okay, so Freud definitely meant conscious was the self-conscious justifying narrator, okay? And for him, image and affect was pretty much unconscious, you know? So that then drops right hemisphere, you know, you might experience it or experience facets of it that's relative to self-conscious, then that's sub or unconscious, all right? And I fundamentally believe that the um, coherent integration across those domains, just like Freud's fundamental observation really is, well, we have our justifying self, right? Which where we internalize standards and we have this sort of animalistic sub unconscious energy stuff. It's like, how the hell are those things going to get along inside of us and between us? That's a damn good question, right? <laughs> you know, um, and then fundamentally central to, to that. And the unified theory then adds, you know, sort of, I think a, a more scientific articulation of the interrelations between those domains. That's interesting in terms of like, I, what I thought of right away was the difference between that narrator rationalizing the upcoming, uh, probably gene driven affective responses and that narrator breaking away and becoming a reasoner instead of a rationalizer and that that's that's a moment in your stack of disciplines but it's also a moment, right. hopefully a moment in the developmental maturation of the individual so right. how do you think right. of that in like neo piagetian terms like what was that transition for people to reasoner from rationalizer no that's great um so uh so the whole idea, really, that's the beauty of the concept of justification. So the beauty, it creates a dimension of propositional language all the way, say, from a defensive rationalizer or just a social role giver. Okay, so when you're young, you're basically like, like five, you're essentially just applying propositions to statements and also becoming a social actor. This is Dan McAdams' terms. It's basically, well, I'll say what the right thing to say is in a social mode so that I get reinforcement. And I can just internalize what the rules of uh, appropriate social actor are, okay? And, and kids then don't have a consolidated system. They'll just give basic rationalizations in a cost-benefit analysis that are contextualized in a social setting. Some, they don't understand all, you know, they'll start lying when they're three, four, and five, and then they'll start playing with what they can get away with, and they'll get socialized into a social actor role. But they basically are rationalizing without reflection at that time. Then you get into an agentic stage, and this will follow a Keegan model at some level. But then the whole point of adolescence is you sort of start waking up and being like, a lot of these rules are kind of bullshit, right? <laughs> it's like, what, why do you say, mom? And why does what you get to say go? You know, why don't I say? <laughs> okay. And now you're consolidating as a, a separate self-concept that has a, an identifiable and trans, uh, cross-situation um, narrator that's like, oh, this is who I am. This is who I could be. This is who I want to be. Okay. Uh, and now you really do develop that ego. That's the consolidation of the ego. In fact, I do psychotherapy. I basically go down to adolescence because my portal into psychotherapy is that identity function. Okay. Right. Uh, my colleagues who work with kids, they sit in the, you know, just the play <laughs> and the systems and all of that. Um, but if I'm doing talk therapy, I'm going to enter into that 
rationalizer who can start to also reason, you know, uh, and then I'll test how defensive that is. Okay. So how, and try to create a space of opening and start to reason about one's rationalizations, you know? Uh, and I believe that if we think about that organ, that ego is a mental organ of justification when it's defended and pressed, it's immediately going to be defensive rationalizing to protect it, but we can open up, we can gain perspective on it, and then we can build to, to from rationalizing to reasoning and, and ultimately to fundamental narrative alignment. I mean, that's the, the goal. There's always going to be shadowing and defenses, but if you create an internal reflective sage, you can train yourself pretty much to see them and go through a therapeutic process where you get alignment and, and have the shadow be much less um, pressing and influential. I like that. It makes a lot of sense to think about rationalization being applied to itself and producing a new emergent, which is presumably accelerated if people emotionally, because of their domestic background, probably have far less reason to be defensive. Then they don't have to do the defensive rationalizing as much. And the rationalization function is available to rationalize about itself producing reasoning. That's right. That's right. And if we go back to Reich and character armor, some people do get developed basically only in a, what I would call an imposter defended self mode. Okay. So their, their, their entire development stands out here. And these folks are actually, if they're, you know, uh, if you, you can see them, it's, you know, if you have like a histrionic personality disorder, it's very, very hard to even have a sense as to what any other system is. Just, no, no, <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, it's like, but, you know, and that's tough. And that whole architecture then is structured there. Most hopefully are, have a sense between when they're defensively rationalizing and when they can be in attuned. You create the right therapeutic context, both emotionally, so the person feels known and valued and seen, and you give them some narrative to give some differentiation. And then they can feel the benefit of being coherently integrated. And then boom, you're on the road to, you know, uh, transformation as far as I'm concerned. I mean, not, I don't mean that, you know, I mean that <laughs> I, I don't want, not like, and then a happy ever story, but I mean, Old you have claims, to, Greg, you know, I mean, the process of therapy starts. That's what I meant. <laughs> I, I'm seeing something about, you know, why it's difficult and rare to get synchronization in these spaces, right? That I think a lot of people, I mean, it may be rare to get synchronization in general in the world, but if people can fall into each other at simple levels, then that's much easier because yeah. the way we have to do it, we have to be able to follow each other mm -hmm. <laughs> and also think of what's emerging for us and hold all of that together. All right. And um, also whatever came up and whatever I wanted to think of and what was this other part of my model and not let any of that get in the way of this part. So there's a very elaborate balancing that has to be pulled off in order to do this at that level. <laughs> there, there are a lot of variables, you know, we're playing a lot of musical instruments all at once. <laughs> Try to keep that harmony and it ain't easy as we jazz improvisationally. <laughs> I, I want to say something about hypnosis and trance and I don't know what mm. it is exactly talking about McGilchrist brought this up mm -hmm. for me okay. because every I got some hypnotherapy training good mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not necessarily interested in specifically helping people <laughs> 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 I, but, <laughs> I, I'm interested in 
changing consciousness. Right. I don't necessarily want to help people quit smoking, although I've done a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in what is the nature of that trance state and yep. what happens if people just hang out in it for a while. Maybe totally. it more than you do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea it might be the normal mode, right? Mm-hmm. In the McGilchrist model, there's sort of been a cultural exaggeration of the left hemisphere. Right. I mean, if these things really are hemispheric the way he says they are, mm-hmm. maybe that our ancestors had more of a natural balance and that most of their consciousness is what we would now consider to be a trance state. Yeah. That might be a perfectly acceptable way to be if you hang out in it enough for it not to just be hacking you and reprogramming you. Totally. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said here uh, from my vantage point. Um, and uh, so, all right, so I, I do think that McGilchrist is basically on target with the, you know, it, any overgeneralization, you know, you can nitpick and whatever. But I think that the uh, differentiation of the functional organization of the hemisphere, um, the system and how it hones in and how it's driven propositionally uh, versus a perspectival gestalt whole there is a lot of angles on that that create utility. And if you track a, the uh, tree of knowledge, the argument is, is that, yeah, justification is a fundamentally different mode okay, of information processing. And then it gets networked in a particular way. And then the way that network gets structured in relationship to your perceptual, perspectival, participatory reasoning is key. Okay. So now what we get is the argument is, is that what I think we're getting socialized into is, is more and more rigid systems of justification as being the thing that's real, okay, that coordinates us. And thus, you then have to basically conform to that system of justification to get along, okay? What is hypnosis? Fundamentally, what hypnosis is, the best way to describe it is it takes that mental organ of justification, which is usually down-regulating and assuring that things are okay, and it says it really gives it the mode of operating to turn itself off, essentially. Okay, So social justification gets switched into now the real state is your suggestibility to whatever mode you're in, and the social, the people that can turn it off basically turn off the normal justificatory system. Right. Okay. And now you're grooving into a totally different participatory mode of being. And that relation, that's why hypnosis is really interesting for the people that can train themselves to switch that off. It opens up the opportunity for, to use John Verveke's term for this perspectival participatory intuitive grip of the self world relation, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because that's a very different mode than justifying mode or propositional knowledge mode. So if we can turn that off and open it up, and if you can feel the truth of that at whatever level, and then bring the system back on, that's a very, very, it's very key to have these systems in proper relation. So I think that's, I think that's really key. And I think it's crucial for us, for our fifth joint point kind of idea, which is sort of like, we got to get out of the reification of our paradigms and be able to include and transcend and switch back out and back and forth different systems of paradigms. And really that is a, it's not exactly hypnosis, but it does say something about the way we relate to our justifying paradigms about what's real and what's good and the ability to step outside of those, empathize with yours, move around, be flexible with them. So I think that that model is very, very crucial for the kind of consciousness that we need going forward. That's uh, that's a great description of it. Um, 
every every couple of months I sit down and redefine what hypnosis is. <laughs> <laughs> so I've covered a lot of territory, but and I, you know, one of the things McGilchrist is really good at is is delineating the difference between the the part of the mind or the mode that focuses on the significances we already know and the part that it's open to significances we don't know. And then like a lot of trance induction is yep. guiding the that the the focus part of the mind toward unspecified significances. That's how you do a conversational induction. But this idea that that left brain is also the social interface, that the socially regulated set of reified assumptions is there and that we unplug and have like a, you know, either an extra social or, or an authentically social at last. <laughs> mind. Exactly. I like right. that a lot. Right. Uh, and it, it feeds into the discussion we were having about energy, I think, because mm -hmm. the, the difference between the, the object or particle and the flow of energy is a bit like the difference between those two modes of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also the music part plays in here. If I'm keeping up with a rhythm or a tempo, I'm sort of falling forward in a momentum from each step. And that's a bit like we're counting down from nine to eight. <laughs> and that's different than I'm just, I'm just here where I am with my beliefs and perceptions at the moment. Now I'm flowing from one to the other with an unspecified expectation that helps me do the trance induction. But that's very analogous to matter to energy. Yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, a particle to field uh, in, the, in that relation and, and context. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've stumbled upon in terms of my own metaphysics, okay, is the unbelievably interesting relationship between the concept of behavior, all right, and phenomenology, okay? And actually, and Bruce and I are syncing up around this enormously, okay? Because grammatology then is going to be linking. So here's, here's, this is the thing that Bruce and I are syncing up around. And all of this has to do with particle field, whole change relations that both specify and catch the dynamic uncertain relation to fall forward. Okay? So, so I, I got obsessed with this concept of behavior. Like what the is behavior because you know psychology is defined as the science of behavior and mental processes and then over time i was like actually we don't know what behavior means at all because <laughs> you think about it it's like well well it's what you can see but it's like no sometimes internal behaviors and everything else it goes to hell and then i figured out but and if you go to the other sciences like physics is defined as now really the science of the behavior of matter and energy okay but then if you deconstruct what behavior means, basically it takes three components. There's the object, okay? So it's your left hemisphere, <laughs> saying what it is. Then there's the field, okay? And then there's the transduction across time, that change. And, and object, field, change are the three ingredients that make up behavior, okay? And those metaphysical concepts, I think, really become actually the lens of science for guess what? Phenomenological observation. <laughs> so now phenomenology, and this was a lot, because then I was like, well, phenomenology captures your nouns. Okay. And then differentiates the positive from what the field is and then moves them in time and verbs. Okay? Um, and then what uh, uh, Bruce showed me is like, well, that's all the thing in relation. That's then the propositional structure actually is the background, the negative of all of that, okay? So now we said, you know, between adjacent to, to use your frame of reference, right? Okay. And so what all of this says is that 
oh my, a coherent approach can take these trans meta perspectives and see them align both in the specific and in the field over time. And if we can hook up like behavior as sort of Newton thought about it and Kantian phenomenology and bounce around between multiple perspectives, and damn, if that's not a new coherent, you know, schema that, 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 that affords all sorts of different uh, effective interrelations. Yeah, Bruce and I were talking yesterday about starting to work on a book together about our take on metaphysics. Mm. I, I told him that, you know, prepositions are the periodic table of adjacency. <laughs> right, if we could work that out, <laughs> we really have something. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, you know, my, uh, I came on metaphysics, I, you know, I really was not well-trained in philosophy, um, but in the last 15, 10 years, it's really been dawned on me that really what the whole tree of knowledge is, is a descriptive metaphysical system. That's really what it is. Uh, and trained as I was as an empirical scientist, I hated metaphysics. And then I've gone back and looked at, actually, yeah, the whole problem is you have scholastic metaphysics, okay, doing their thing. And then Galileo comes along and says, I'm going to define everything empirically. But of course, he, you leave object, field, and change on the table as metaphysical concepts, right? And then if we can now gain new perspectives on that and then say, well, actually, the grammar of propositional thought, <laughs> nouns, <laughs> verbs, and propositional <laughs> adjectival adverbial relations are the ways in which you're jumping from our phenomenology to behavior. So subjective phenomenology, objective behavior, and the intersubjective construction of reality, you get an epistemological ontological synergy there that can rock. So I love to see that book <laughs> and, and I love the a propositional <laughs> adjacency dynamic because it frames everything. That was a glue. I was on a, I was on a walk with my dog and I paused Okay. When yeah. Bruce was talking about grammatology, I wrote him about this and I just looked around and I was like, I am with, I am between everything's a proposition, <laughs> a preposition. I was like, Oh my God, it was beautiful. It was a synergistic moment. So I, I called him on that and I was like, thank you so much. Cause his grammatology around that was, you know, I was doing nouns, verbs, and then and adjectives. And then John got me into adverbs. And now I was like, Oh my God, Bruce figured out the whole grammatology. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is one of the places where Bruce and I originally got together because we both um, you know appreciated Wilbur's attempt to use pronouns to identify right. types of perspectives, but also then how do you extend that principle? Can you go deeper than pronouns? Can it apply to other areas of this structure? Are are our underlying grammatical necessities the basis for an appropriate metaphysics? And we ended up like I. I think one of the first conversations I had with him was around whether those zones could be defined by these terms. Cause I would say mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not really the inside and the outside and the intersubjective. That's a really good way to talk about it, but it's really at, as, with, and via. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I had not, you know, I was naive to that view until this past year when I picked up the, uh, Bruce's thing. And I've been absorbing the prep prepositional position ever since. So, and then I heard your talk about adjacency. Yeah, no, it really fills in for those of us that are just clunky with nouns and verbs, the preposition thing's beautiful. <laughs> There's a, yeah, uh, you know, the, these different uh, conversational groups that are overlapping, right. Uh, Metamodernism, you know, <laughs> the deep web game B integral theory, all these sorts of things. 
Uh, and they all have different slight specializations. Some of them are a little bit more sociopolitical. Some are a little bit more technological. Some of them are a bit more psychospiritual. Yep. Psychospiritual element of the integral theory is very often around its inclusion of states of consciousness as primary factors. Absolutely. And one of the first things uh, that Bruce and I discussed was a sense of what are the different languagings for these different states? Because mm. there do seem to be some kind of regular patterns for what we call the gross realm or the mm-hmm. whatever this is. Right. The <laughs> very verb and noun kind of description, right? Mm-hmm. Dick and Jane chase the ball through the park. <laughs> and then we go, well, what do we mean when we say the subtle realm? Do we just mean dreams and visions mm-hmm. or schools mm-hmm. or something? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, sort of. But in speech, we're it's very... It's adjectives in a lot of ways, right? It's the redness apart from the red things. Right. It's, uh, it's the um, formal architecture of qualitative transformations. Mm-hmm. And that may be a legitimate realm of its own, or it may be an epiphenomenon. We're not quite mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And then there's this thing they call the causal state using mm-hmm. old like, theosophical sure. language. Yep. No, I'm familiar with these terms. Yep. It's usually like... Uh, just my pure witnessing experience. Mm -hmm. But that's not all it is. It's also mathematics. It's also logic. It's also Mm -hmm. every, you know, Mm -hmm. transparent, n-dimensional, infinite and infinitesimal Mm -hmm. architecture Mm -hmm. that we need. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's very often deployed as, I would say, an apophatic kind of languaging. You Mm -hmm. cancel something or you Mm -hmm. take it to infinity. Mm -hmm. um, Like if we say the unchanging world what we did was well none of the changes is what we languaged <laughs> right? right it's a cancellative right. it's an ablative mm-hmm. languaging right. and then there's this so-called non-dual form and mm-hmm. its languaging is always to present a contradiction and mm-hmm. to uh, cancel it without canceling it <laughs> right <laughs> we both are and are not different or <laughs> doing non-dual languaging so that's something that really intrigues me or is these apparent relationships between forms of languaging and forms of experience of consciousness love it yeah uh i mean and to me i really do and this is this is my spiritual side talking but i really do see those higher states if we come back to your metaphor about kind of climbing up and then seeing and then collapsing I mean, I feel that from somebody who's, you know, sort of at least comes from a naturalist and skeptical view. And then you see that and feel that hierarchy. And that's that's what pulls me into uh, and and the non-dual sort of the, the causal form hitting the material from the epistemological, phenomenological and then getting the non-dual contradictions just receding. That's sort of for me, wisdom energy moments. I've had several of those. Those are non you know that the, what do you say about non-dual <laughs> you know that sort of it is the thing that is in itself you know <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a perfect example of the languaging of asserting a difference can't prove the difference and yet retain the difference. <laughs> thank you <laughs> you know one of the things i like about prepositions and uh, as an essential component sort of in addition to or through the uh, Mm -hmm. field object and transformation Mm -hmm. thing you were talking about is uh, how it shows up in a lot of different areas, right? Like Mm -hmm. when I think of prepositions, I also think of Heidegger's discussion of comportment and how we Mm -hmm. orient ourselves. And I also think of asanas in yoga and, you know, and this idea that you can by taking different stances, you actually produce different kinds of hormonal outputs in yourself. And that the, 
the the architecture of our postures uh-huh. it's a really relevant factor whether it's at the scale of complex human beings or right down to the scale of the metaphysics we need to have no metaphysics <laughs> beautiful beautiful i mean that's actually so i mean at a real concrete uh, <laughs> i'll be concrete about that so john and i one of our moments of just so, so that the audience knows so john verveke you know uh, differentiates the ad adverbial witnessing frame, okay, which would then get into some of the causal stuff. But anyway, it's just a witnessing frame that's adverbial, okay? And then what you actually see is then adjectival quality property, all right? Um, And I know you know this, I'm just saying for people that are uh, sort of following along. And I love that differentiation. That was a find that the I had thought witnessing and, and, you know, what you see, see, or that kind of thing, but, oh, the adjectival framing and the adverbial. And then I couldn't quite figure out, well, how does, how does that witnessing function really emerge? Okay. In the evolution now at the phylogenetic animal environment level. And I applied behavioral investment theory to it. And I'm reading a lot on animal, early animal uh, emergence. There, there's a group of individuals that argue for what's called the, the early or ancient origins of consciousness. Okay. And the basic argument for the ancient origins of consciousness is that in the Cambrian explosion, okay, about 550 million years ago, pre-Cambrian explosion, you have some basic bilateral plans, kind of like a C. elegans worm. You know, you have a little bit of eyes, you have a basic nervous system, but you don't have a complex active body. Then you jump into a complex active body, say like a crab. That's what happens. And then these things move around and they fight with each other and they flee and they prey on each other and they mate. Okay. And for the tree of knowledge, that's really the argument about where mind, uh, because what you get is complex action. uh, And then the question, whether you have any sentience there at all. Now it just happened to have it right here. So like this book is called the evolution of the sensitive soul. All right. And essentially, it lines up very much with behavioral investment theory, which basically says to organize this complex participatory system, okay, you have a perceptual, you integrate across the senses to get a perceptual gestalt of where the whole animal is. You then take an interior reception, which is what are your motive and need states, okay? And then you jolt out a reaction about good or bad between those, all right? And that's the origin then of feeling states. Okay, which tell you then, hey, it's a good, bad state, approach and avoid this. And pleasure and pain really are essentially the initial broadcast symbols, okay, for orienting the body towards approach and avoid and tagging what the body is learning based on its consequences. All right. So let's go back then to why this is, why did I go into that long basic frame? The issue is then that what John and I were together and I was sort of like those valence that's valence qualia, which are different than adjectival and adverbial qualia. Okay. And now to swing it all the way back, what are the valence qualia doing? They orient the body <laughs> toward <laughs> away with, okay. There basically can be thought of these, these core proposition, uh, prepositional qualia. Okay. That are talking that are really charged of the relation of the animal environment. All right. And then that, so then I was like, I told Bruce, I was like, I want to call valence qualia, these prepositional qualia that set the stage for adjectival and adverbial. And then ultimately it loops all the way back around in a non-dual, which basically (laughs) 
think you can follow the arc of consciousness from animals here to wisdom energy kinds of moments where you are in non-dual states. And I just, to me, that's just beautiful. That's just, uh, uh, so anyway, that's a, that's a long architectural argument, but it's, uh, to me, that's what, but this is the cool thing. Like science can deconstruct this and we can piece these things together and we can have a science spirituality dialogue that's so much more harmonious. That's what we need in the 21st century, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that the, um, the different like prepositions represent thematic distinctions in the architecture of relationality at a very deep level. And that's something that all forms of knowledge have in common. And I think, you know, computer scientists really bring like, what are the basic functional mm. code options that we have? Beautiful. And they give us these different styles. Like sometimes when I'm thinking about adjacency, right. If I think of like there's next and there's next to, that's very interesting hmm. right? because next is a temporal adjacency. Mm -hmm. You never actually get the present moment. It's always slightly offset. Yeah. And then right. next to is, if you don't have next to, there's no such thing as a spatial mapping. Right. So it's interesting right. too. But they're thematically distinct architectures of the same principle of relational offset. Wow. That's really cool. So I like that. But coming back to animals. You know, when I moderated the discussion with you and Steve McIntosh, mm -hmm. it was like an interesting point of contention about the significance of animal nervous systems mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. discrete stage in the evolutionary process. Right. I, I think you're sort of coming at it from the point of view of like, here's a discrete domain of knowledge around uh, neuromobile organisms that's different yep. than when we have around plants. Yep. And Steve was coming at it from the point of view of, the things we ascribe to animal nervous systems, we find most of that same stuff in plants. They do have sentient valence responses they and they do. do have these internal organization processes. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit splitting hairs, whether we want to call that a stage or a substage or whatever, but it's fascinating to think that what's, what's added to that by sapient beings, mm -hmm. is some kind of uh, slight additional, reflective complication where we take those valences up to adverbs and adjectives. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a I, right. Steve and I have a slight disagreement on that. And I have a, I have a disagreement that most big picture systems like big history is the same way. Raw, uh, Steve McIntosh goes on Ralston's uh, the three big bangs. Okay. Each big bang like there's the big bang that gives rise to the matter dimension. And then there's life dimension and then human. If you look at big history, they divide it the same way. I'm somebody that says yes. And I'm, and my metaphysics is certainly is strong on this point, at least in terms of it says it's really important. And that is, yep. There is a fundamental another layer to get the metaphysics, right? That you want to go from plants into animals. Okay. And to the part of the confusion is that we have thought of plants in, in, so almost disrespectful terms, you know, a bunch of dumb things. Okay. Plants have serious intelligence. They have absolutely what I would call functional awareness and response. And you see this in trees, you see this in plants, they signal stuff. We can get into whether they have any, what we would call phenomenological subjectivity or experience pleasure and pain. My argument would be they don't, um, but they have functional response, which is different, but it's, it's the precursor. Yeah. Okay. But I do argue that really to get the metaphysics right, we want to think about the universe as levels, like part, whole, group, across scale. 
And then there's the supervening information processing communication systems. And if you use that lens of behavioral frequency, then the nervous system pops as another layer of information processing communication. And although plants have this, uh, have obviously physiological communication and uh, information processing, the neurophysiological that then mechanically controls the body of the animal as a whole in active movement, boom, man, I'm arguing that that is a, that is a big difference. <laughs> I appreciate what Steve's trying to emphasize, but I think yes. it's, it's very much important to think about these other uh, intermediary layers, let's call them. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a great conversation with a guy who's trying to be the, the integral theory, traditional Chinese medicine guy. who has got some yeah, okay. poems on this, right? So we had a lot of discussion about organ systems. Mm. And uh, sometimes I equate organ systems with plants in a holarchical evolutionary scale because mm -hmm. we go, well, I mean, it's too easy to go, there's cells and then there's <laughs> bodies that contain them. <laughs> right. That's no, true, no. but there are these other systems and they are Amen. sensitive and responsive and intelligent to some degree. Totally. And when you become a, I would call it a neuromobile organism, yep. <laughs> you contain and move around a whole bunch of these organs, just like exactly. they do that with cells. But it's a really key element of, of health and well-being, and also of the functional analysis of things. And you can't really use the same analysis for organs and plants as you do for animals. So I think, you know, just functionally, there's a distinction there, even though I, I get what Steve's saying. Yeah. I, I do think that we have a generative closer loop that happens with animals that gets on top of the uh, physiological organismic uh, arrangement. So certainly that's what the tree of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, if I, if I think emphasize. of an animal body as like a bunch of plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. right. And, and really, as we talk, we create a bunch of animal minds together. You know, each one of these is a generative closure meta system that ties this, uh, uh, the underneath forces uh, and parts together. That's sort of, you know, a whole on uh, growth trajectory from a Wilbur perspective. Well, here's one of the, you know, uh, I think unknown questions, which is um, when we think of what's next, I mean, we can certainly think of, I, I develop to another layer of myself. Mm -hmm. We can certainly think about, we establish a deeper collective, mm -hmm. but what does a membrane around that look like? You know, we're, we're, you know, <laughs> going somewhere in intersubjective conversation, but there's no physical membrane forming around that the way we did around our organs and the way our organs did around our cells, et cetera. Right, right. Well, right. The, the, uh, the interface really <clears throat> grows with each step. So once you're now engaged in what I would call the mental behavioral plane, now you're in the, in the dance at the animal level, okay? Then we create the culture person plane, that's how we then talk. And that's much, each one of these is more diffuse than the one before right. uh, in terms of in that relation. And now the whole issue of like what's actually happening as more and more networks get together on this level of justification and we're now plugging into the digital world, you know, that's, that's why it's just like, yeah, this whole thing is like, how the hell are we going to get a handle on this <laughs> at multiple <laughs> levels? <laughs> I mean, what the hell is this hyper object? <laughs> That's a big question. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily as pessimistic as the people who are looking at 
how the algorithms are manipulating us and driving society. Yeah. But I'm not necessarily as optimistic as Alexander Bard is about the digital future. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to get a read on that. That's a, you know, it all depends on my affective mood. <laughs> so I've got, I've got, you know, as I say, I feel, I, I, here's the way I describe it. I feel like we're on the cusp uh, of, a, of a horizon, you know, that has heaven and hell well within the possibility of the future. Uh, so yeah. it's a, you know, that's, uh, I sync up with John on the chirotic moment. It's the fifth joint point. The tree of knowledge says, hey, these information processing and communication systems are what networks nodes together. And that gives complex adaptive planes of existence. We create a digital virtual field where we can hang out with and then build artificial intelligence systems that we interface with. The possibilities are essentially endless of what a hundred year out is going to look like. And no one, so it's, a, so the change rate of change is happening super fast. These things open up adjacent possibilities. So the old structures now look what we did to the rest of the animals, right? When I was like, we beat the shit out of them <laughs> in terms of our, because, because we can learn and then learn so much faster, cultural evolution so much faster. So now we're at this cusp. And so it seems to me that it's like, yep, the potential outcomes are huge. So I, somebody that's like sort of fully optimistic seems to me to be, oh, I know there's a lot of bad things that can happen and a lot of vulnerability. Somebody's fully pessimistic seems to be like, oh, and there's so much good that's really emerging. Um, so I think it's a very high, <clears throat> it gives my life a lot of meaning though, because, yeah. you know, what is meaning at a transcendent level is like we ought to matter. And uh, I found a nice quote, uh, uh, you know, be a good ancestor, you know, and uh, that's a good way for me to sort of pragmatically align my soul to my transcendent way of being. And I think if we're like, this is a super important time, if this is a really important time in terms of where the outcomes are very much in flux and there's not a lot of sustainability and therefore little, from a chaos perspective, little bumps, then you just are like, okay, yeah, I really feel the obligation to try to align my little baton of energy information in a way that maximizes the likelihood that the next generations are moving toward, you know, this side of the equation as opposed to that side of the yeah, that's a great ethical principle to be a good ancestor. I think there's a, you know, you can be a good ancestor to yourself, which I think mm -hmm. is Jordan Peterson focuses a lot. Yeah, on, like, yeah, how do you so. yourself <laughs> Right, look at forward and be responsible <laughs> to your future self, definitely. But also mm -hmm. for the civilization and also in very much in the sense of the Cynthiast or Teilhard de Chardin mm -hmm. notion of totally God as an omega point moving into yep. the future. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned your daughter earlier. Mm-hmm. What, what have been your observations about her interface with digital technology, right? She's obviously, we've got a, a 13 year old girl here. Okay. And so we're, you know, constantly thinking about <laughs> whether we're supposed to do anything relative to her exposure to culture and devices, and things like yeah. that. And, you know, sometimes you're worried you're not doing enough. Other times you think, well, maybe I've been too anxious about this. Totally. Uh, yeah. Yours is obviously a little bit older, but. Well, I have three. I have three children. Okay, yeah. uh, so uh, my uh, oldest is twenty-one. My my son has just turned twenty, uh, and then I have a daughter that's about ready to turn seventeen. So we went through the <laughs> we're now on the backside of adolescence with the group, you know, going through it all. Um, yeah, it's a you know I, any parent that tells you, oh, I know what I'm doing uh, at the you know, and I'm pretty well versed in psychology and all this stuff. These kinds of decisions uh, about 
I mean, I thought about myself. I was like, okay, if I was 12 and had access at my fingertips to what kids have access to these days, I mean, would I be even sane? <laughs> like, you know, given what I did to get my hands on porn when I was 14. And now you can just, and yet like my son basically is like, no, he just knows how to. So, so the really weird, unpredictable dynamics. Okay. So meaning that it's availability all of a sudden for like my son, he was like, no, I mean, not say, but he yeah. would, he regulated it much more, you know, easily than I would have guessed just on the kind of like, oh my God, is this available? I have worried about how much screen time my kids have. It's definitely, um, I've done, uh, I listened to Jonathan Haidt. He talks about a very high regulatory. Well, what I would consider to be very, you know, his daughter can use it for a certain period and then it's done because he sees screen time. You know, we have decided not to go that route. We went the route of, well, be wary of it. Try to get outside, hear some principles. And, you know, we're pretty autonomous parents, meaning that we foster, you find your path. Um, and the, the path certainly is a hell of a lot of screen time. That's for goddamn sure. Yeah, um, exactly. And I, uh, you know, and it's weird because you, I mean, I find you have this tendency to want to steer them and then you're mm -hmm. basically doing the same thing yourself. So you're like, well, maybe it's, you know, are we all caught in the same trap or is it not as bad as I thought? Yep. Uh, these kids are, they surprise me in how self-regulatory and how self-policing they are probably mm -hmm. more so than I would have been. Uh, and well, I think yeah, I see that background skills in the, in the environment, I think, but also it's a process of, you know, I think they have more opportunity to adapt to these things. Totally. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we've been relatively successful in the level of, you know, where our kids are, their maturation, their mental health, their, their achievement. I'll say I, I, my kids are high regulators, you know, yeah. and they internalize their parents, stronger parents than I am, <laughs> you, know, you know, dad's out there drinking and smoking some weed going, why don't you guys do any of this? And like, God, dad, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, okay. You know, so that's, it's, it's been a, it's been a fun and fascinating journey, no doubt. Um, the, the nuance of what intrigues me here is, you know, as it's very selfish uh, emotionally for me, um, where, and I guess you already covered some of this, where were you worried that it turned out you didn't have to worry? Mm -hmm. And where in hindsight, do you think, oh, maybe I should have done something about that and didn't do something about that? Good question. Um, <laughs> Right. I, I'll be a little careful in terms of just <laughs> you know, advertising <laughs> my kids on, on that. <laughs> um, well, I already alluded. I think that the, the, what the internet made them available to uh, and that they would again get exposed and potentially corrupted by, I would say I was really surprised that that didn't happen at all, basically, that I, to my knowledge. And, and I think I have enough knowledge to say, yeah, that really didn't happen. In other words, it didn't they didn't lead into some crazy pathway and then have all these weird ideas. Now that's not just because my three kids didn't do it. You know, the, the, you know, they, and, and then this brings to what happened to um, for whatever genetic and developmental reasons, all three of them develop what I would call high constraint superegos. Okay. Meaning that they really internalized rules in particular ways, which was surprising to me. Cause like I said, my wife and I are pretty, especially me, I'm pretty much like, well, you know, I skipped school and ditch it. And no, it's like my daughter is valedictorian. My son was salutatorian. My next daughter may be valedictorian. They're like, they're unbelievably attentive to in ways that just sort of like, 
And then how to relate to that has been interesting, sort of like, because I see them as like, I mean, I deal with doc students all the time, okay? And, and doc students come in and I'm, by this time, I really want them to let go of the perfectionism, okay? But I see many of them as having, that's what got them in. And now at 26 or 27, this basically, what I would consider sort of an adolescent performative rule-based structure is really constraining them. And they've internalized it so far and they've gotten so many rewards sort of, hey, they're adolescent, you know, that that's like, that's the structure that's like baked in. So I would say, I, I don't know how to deal with that, but I would say, I, I mean, I, at least I intellectually tell my kids, I was like, you guys drive yourself way too hard and you're going to end up in a little box. And then they're just like, leave me alone. <laughs> I was like, so that's what's, you know, if anything has emerged in a way that I wouldn't have expected given my parenting style. But, you know, kids, that's the whole point about if you know the research on it, you know, what you do, so much of it is this dynamic interrelation. You know, you try to clamp down on the kids and they get all reactive and they go out there and be impulsive and you, you let them go. And then all of a sudden they control themselves in really intense ways. But um, it's trying to figure out how to, we'll see, but I would say that I hope they evolve in a way where they feel free and with their hearts rather than sort of like perfectionistic and, and performatively regulated, which I feel like the school does a lot of. I, uh, you know, when I think about what I liked about my parents in terms mm -hmm. of their approach to raising me, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I come back to a lot was something that I, I think of my father doing it, but obviously my, I think my mother did some of it as well, which was he usually tried to tell me not what to do, but how to do whatever I was doing a little better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I try to embody that as much as I can, but here's an interesting thing, right? So this is another development, right? We've, mm -hmm. we've folded in a sort of domestic familial element to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Now it's that made the in-sync uh, richer because this other human element is folded in mm -hmm. that is meaningful to both of us, or mm -hmm. have we dropped away from the, uh, mm. the synchrony of the high level of uh, meta conceptual engagement? Right. <laughs> I I mean, for me, I, at some level, the yeah, the high level resonance drops down, and now it's just sort of like our our kind of folk ensoulment now. Like, hey, Han, how do you parent? <laughs> you know, like, uh, and and that's you know, it's a different kind of resonance uh, for me. So that's what it feels like. But yeah, this is uh, you know, when I drop into this, like, how am I a dad? What's the what's the real everyday folk ensoulment of my place in the world and how I've been? Uh, so it does have a different feel than oh my god, fifth joint point. <laughs> you know, and that you can ask my kids about how weird it is to have a dad that spends a hell of a lot of time, you know, yelling about fifth joint point into a computer. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what their, you know, what their impression is of your mind, of your psyche, you know, because I've got, I've got an uncle, he's an economics professor. And when I talk to my cousins who I love, they'll be like, oh, he won't talk about it. He doesn't like spirituality. He doesn't like this. You know, like, and I'm always like, that's weird because he and I just talked about that for an hour. Mm. So like, is it, is it your perception? Is it, was it an old version of him that he said something when you were five and it just right. stuck? Or right. do you not quite ask him the question in the right way to elicit that part of his mind? Sure. What's going sure. <laughs> Right. Right. No doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother uh, sort of insolment topic. Uh, I, I will say, I mean, part of my life story is that this thing is so, it's very dominant in my yeah. world, you know, that's been, um, you know, and that, so that plays a role. I, I mean, we have to process it occasionally. Dad and his work, you know, it's, it's definitely a bit of an obsession. Um, 
I'm happy to say that I don't, it's you know, just like, like maybe a theoretical physicist, if I was doing only that, then I'd be, you know, that I'm also a clinical psychologist, then bring uh, the richness, I maintain the rich connection. Um, but it's a little weird for them, my obsession with the work, there's no doubt about it. It's weird for other people in my family that I fell into this thing. And <laughs> it's <laughs> funny, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like religion in a way. There's totally. A, it's very you know, much it's like you're a convert. To your right, I built my own religion. <laughs> I was like, who the hell does that? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> when I was in my teens, I was really interested in the uh, British occultist Alistair Crowley, who mm. had a very kind of modernist approach on magic rituals as oh. forms of changing your own psychology. Mm-hmm. But he underwent an experience where it seemed like he had a religious revelation and he thought, ah, that's ridiculous. Mm. And he boxed it up and sent it away. And years later he was up in the attic and he opened up the box and he read it. He was like, Oh my God, this is correct. <laughs> he was to his own religion. <laughs> that's hysterical. Beautiful. So it's beautiful. And this is a bit like that, but the difference now is we have all these tools for talking to other people who've had the same experience. That's right. That's I, right. I dialogue with Jim Rutt a couple hmm. of recently and we were talking about the difference between setting up civiums and proto b forms of the game you think and how that's different from old school experimental living communities and communes right right one of the major differences is there's a shared rubric for those people to talk to each other now Mm -hmm. and to exchange the successes and failures of their attempts so Mm. you can be a convert to your own religion but if you enter in the community of converts to their own religion, then maybe you got something. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's what we're building. <laughs> yeah. And that does really speak to the beautiful uniqueness of, I mean, you know, I mean, think about COVID on the one hand, it's, you know, so brutal, but it's also for me, at least open up so many, you know, wonderful types of connections. And that's, that's, I do feel like there's an emerging fertile energy of both connections and maybe negative spaces that are opening up for systems to grow. And uh, there's a lot of movement for us to fill our souls in very different ways than we have. And I f- I'm feeling that there's resonance uh, toward that in a new, new way these days. Okay, I'm having this feeling that maybe this is near the end of the conversation, but I have two feelings about that. Like one comes from the fact that I do a lot of these conversations, mm-hmm. I get a sense of their arc in general. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm having that same feeling I had five minutes into this conversation, which is it just went really well and now I'm panicked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to gotta get out before it goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I'm tracking that resonance, you know. <laughs> Somehow, we, so I feel we like we'll be it. <laughs> right. we, we've had peak conversation. Uh, well, let's uh, let's pretend this is the end of the conversation, and uh, let me say what a pleasure it's been, and thanks for thanks for working through this stuff with me, Craig. Oh man, I tell you, um, you know, you and Bruce and so many other people in this have just warmed my heart. So I really appreciate the invitation and the ability to come on in and share some of these thoughts. I mean, I really, I, for folks that are watching this, I mean, the, the synergy and the sinking is just, to me, it's, it's just striking. So, and, and powerful. It, yeah, I mean, it gives me, it gives me the feels that I expect religion to give me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and if this is emerging and people have converted and we can maintain our uniqueness and at the same time sync up and then emanate, man, that's a generative enclosure for the future. Beautifully said.